Over the past four months, we have together read and studied and applied to our lives the gospel according to Mark. Uh, One of the greatest joys of the past four months has been I got to team with five others in teaching. It's been thrilling. I have loved encountering the Lord, encountering the glory of the Lord Jesus with you all, and it has shaped me week in and week out. There have been so many of the truths that I've studied and the truths that I've been preached um, that I've gone back to and have continued to be shaped by them standing in awe of the glory of Jesus. But as we begin this, what's final for now, this final study of Mark, today marks the last study, I want to actually begin by giving three big-picture overviews of the gospel that we gave the very first week and occasionally hit on throughout the series. There are just three I want to review. The first is, that first week I define what a gospel is. The gospel according to Mark. What is a gospel? When we first studied Mark, I pointed out that the kind of book that Mark is, a gospel, is a joyful announcement that God's chosen king has arrived. A gospel is a regal announcement. God's king is here. Mark, which is one of four accounts of the gospel in the Bible, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's one of four accounts that is a biography of Jesus that is intended to testify He's God's king. God's king has arrived on earth. It is a royal, a regal announcement. And these four witnesses to Jesus provide, as it were, differing but corroborating testimony, almost like in a courtroom saying, Jesus really is God's chosen king for the planet. Second thing that I want to go back to, the second overarching comment is I explain Mark's close relationship with Peter. I think this is helpful understanding historically and biblically. At the time that Mark wrote this gospel account, it was in the mid-60s AD, so it was just maybe three decades after the events of Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension into heaven promising to return. Mid-60s. At that time, according to 1 Peter 5, Mark and Peter are teammates spreading the gospel in Rome. Peter and Mark are are gospel teammates. They're planting churches in the, the largest city in the world at the time, Rome. As Peter's teammate, Mark must have heard Peter answer the question, so who's Jesus and why should I care? He must have heard Peter hear and answer that question hundreds of times. And it's interesting that a few historical records from the century after Mark was written indicate that Mark's account of the gospel is putting into writing what Peter said verbally. So, for example, in 140 AD, so about 80 years after Mark was written, Papias, who was a pastor in Colossae, said that Mark penned this book so that Christians would have a way, a written record of the way Peter explained the gospel. That's Papias pastor in Colossae, a few decades after Mark was written. Just a few years after that, 175, Irenaeus, or Irenaeus. Irenaeus, who grew up in Turkey and then took the gospel to Lyon, or the southern part of France, he writes 
quote, Mark transmitted to us in writing the things preached by Peter. It seems that as Peter knew that he was about to die, Mark said, I need to put into writing what I have heard Peter say repeatedly over the past several years. There's a close relationship in this gospel between Peter, Jesus' lead disciple, and Mark. The third comment, I noted four key points in Mark's gospel, in his account of the gospel. The first one is the very first verse. Mark introduces Jesus as the Son of God. That is a title that indicates how unique Jesus is. Because of the way Mark unfolds this description of Jesus as the Son of God, we know that he's not merely saying he is a human king chosen by God, but Mark is indicating that Jesus is eternally related to God the Father as God the Son. He is the Son of God in a unique sense. The second key verse in Mark's account of the Gospel is Mark 8, 29. This is sometimes called the turning point in the book. And it's where Jesus posed the question to the disciples who'd been following him for a few years, who do you think I am? And Peter represents the apostles in saying, we are convinced that you're the Messiah. You are God's chosen king. God's chosen king who in the plan of God, you are going to rid this earth of sin and death. You're going to rid this earth of the curse and you are going to rule forever over a world that flourishes in peace. They're convinced of it. They don't understand that it's going to involve crucifixion yet. And so, there's more key turning points in the book. I'm going to skip the third one. We're going to come back to it in a minute. But the last key point, this is the climactic conclusion. It's the inescapable conclusion that Mark and Peter wanted every single person who lived in Rome to come to. At the very end of the book, at the climax of the book, Jesus has just died. It says he breathed his last, and there was a centurion there, a Roman soldier, who observed everything surrounding the crucifixion, and he said, truly, this was the Son of God. The third key point, key point in Mark's gospel is the one we're going to focus on today, and that is, Mark 10, 45, which is often called the theme verse of Mark. It's going to be our text, and I invite you to turn to Mark 10. I invited you to turn there a bit ago, but I want to now point your attention toward the middle of the chapter. It's this third key point in the book. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. Look at verse 33. He knows he's going to be crucified there, and he actually tells his disciples, verse 33, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man's going to be, and he says he's going to be betrayed, sentenced to death, mocked, and killed. But after three days, he'll rise. And in verse 35, James and John, two of the lead disciples, they seem to completely miss what Jesus has just said. Or maybe they thought he was speaking in some figurative way. We don't know. But Jesus is describing, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. And they say, could you give us the first two seats in your cabinet? You want to talk about insensitivity. They asked for the highest positions in the cabinet of Jesus' kingdom. And verse 41, notice, indicates that the other ten disciples were ticked at them. 
And the reason they were ticked is because they were full of the same selfish ambition that James and John were. And James and John just beat them to the question. Now, if you think that Jesus' church is full of naturally selfish and ambitious and competitive people, you're absolutely right. The church began that way. The church, wherever it is, always begins that way. I want us to pick up our reading at verse 42. Mark 10, verse 42. And Jesus called them, all the twelve to him. This is a good teaching time. And he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Or as one translation puts it, In this world, kings are tyrants and officials lord it over the people beneath them. Greatness is authority, rule, power. Jesus says, verse 43, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And here's verse 45, the explanation. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four. He doesn't record any detail of the birth of Jesus. But even though he doesn't explain how Jesus came into the world, here, with crystal clarity, he explains why Jesus came into the world. Mark 10.45 is Jesus' mission statement. It's the mission statement of his life. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, in just a minute, I'm going to crystallize this into why it's significant for us, what it means for us, why it's significant. But for us to understand the significance, I have to explain one critical detail of this verse. It's a critical detail that we talk about several times a year because Jesus uses the phrase a lot. The scriptures use the phrase a lot. What does Jesus mean when he calls himself the Son of Man? When Jesus refers to himself in verse 45 as the Son of Man, he does the same thing in verse 33 as well. He is making an audacious claim. He's actually referring to a vision that was given to Daniel several centuries before. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 read, And I saw the Son of Man approach the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father, And to this Son of Man was given dominion, glory, a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve and worship him. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. His kingdom is the kingdom that will not be destroyed. So when Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, he doesn't simply mean I'm human. I'm the Son of a person. It means that Jesus is the ultimate human. It means that Jesus is the long-awaited king who's going to rule over every other human. When Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man, he claimed to be the one human who is worthy of supreme political power forever 
and the one human who is worthy of the total devotion of every single human who ever lives. That's what it means to be the Son of Man. Now, in light of this sort of claim, we have to remember what C.S. Lewis famously said, right? You have three options. Jesus is a liar, Jesus is a lunatic, or Jesus is Lord. In light of Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man, there is no way of saying he was a nice guy and a good teacher. We are not left with that option. Not in light of such claims, right? Now you take that information about the Son of Man and you plug it again into verse 45 and Jesus says the most remarkable thing. He says, my disciples should seek to serve other people because even the Son of Man, that is the human who is worthy of supreme power and devotion, even the Son of Man came to serve others. He even gave himself to die for others. So here's how I'd word the message of Mark 10:45. Jesus, who is earth's supreme and eternal king, chose to become the lowest servant and die for slaves. So every human should worship him and follow his servant-mindedness. The greatest king became the lowest servant. It's Jesus' mission statement in life. There are three realities that are bound up in this, and I want to apply each of them to us before we conclude. The first reality is this. We must accept that humans, humans are by nature slaves to sin and death. We are people in need of ransom. You can't understand Jesus' mission statement until you understand this, that we need to be ransomed. It's the final phrase of this monumental statement in verse 45 where Jesus says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. The term ransom comes from the slave block. It's the part of the city where slaves were sold. A ransom is the amount of money that would be paid to free a slave, to buy a slave's or or a prisoner's freedom. That's a ransom. It's the value, it's the price paid to free a slave. So before we can accurately understand the mission of Jesus, why he came to earth, we must accurately understand our condition as humans. Ever since the rebellion of our first parent, Adam, humans have been enslaved to rebellion against God and to the consequence that that rebellion brings, which is death. Now, sometimes our enslavement to sin is very obvious. We call it addiction. It's out of control. We can't control it anymore. But sometimes our enslavement to sin, I would say most of the time our enslavement to sin, is rather hard to detect. It kind of flies under the radar because it's the air we breathe. Let it go. Live your truth. Look out for number one. Do you know what those statements indicate? They are statements that say, I'm going to govern myself. 
I am going to express myself because I'm most important. They are statements of anarchy. We're enslaved to rebellion against God. We were made, we were created, we exist for Christ. And yet we choose by nature to live for ourselves. It's anarchy. Have you considered? I've been shooting straight. Just breathe. Have you considered that you might be a slave in need of ransom? It's only if you get that reality that you can then understand why God the Son was born in a manger. He came to pay ransom. A second reality I want to apply is this. We must worship Jesus, who in self-sacrificial love chose to become a servant of slaves. On this occasion, Jesus was explaining why he came and why he was going to imminently be crucified. He describes that he would give himself to die as an act of service. It was a way for him to serve others and to purchase their freedom. He was going to use his life to serve others and buy their freedom. So we need to dig deeper and just think about two facets of this. The first one is just the fact that Jesus was our representative and substitute. In the plan of God the Father, Jesus was appointed to be the representative. We might call him, literally, the union representative. He was the representative who would act in such a way that what he accomplished, he accomplished for all those united to him. He was appointed by God to act as our representative. And so when he bore God's punishment for human rebellion, it counted for everyone who'd be united with him. Second, he was not only acting as our representative and substitute, but he was in love, self-sacrificing. He was sacrificing himself for us. He chose to give his life, lay down his life for slaves. And this is remarkable because the ones he chose to give his life for are ones he could have rightly, justly, and easily dismissed as unworthy. I mean, you just think about the guys in front of him. He's walking ahead, which means he's alone. They're all walking behind him on the way to Jerusalem, and they're arguing among themselves who's going to be the greatest. And James and John beat the other ten to the punch, and the other ten are ticked. The men standing in front of him are about as insensitive as you can think. They're full of selfish ambition. They're full of competition. They each want to be better than the other and more recognized than the other and have it easier than the other. And rather than dismissing these guys as unworthy of his service, Jesus says, I'm going to make myself your slave. I'm going to pay for your ransom. Jesus, the Son of Man, chose to be a servant of slaves. That is love. That is glory. Can you think of any higher glory? Can you think of any more beautiful glory? It's as good as it gets. We should marvel. We should wonder. We should worship. 
If you have never submitted your life to Jesus, God's chosen king, who gave his life so that everyone united with him could be ransomed from sin, their slavery to sin and death, I urge you to do so now. In view of the glory of the Son of Man, who made himself your servant, submit yourself to him. He's the one worthy of your full devotion. He is the one worthy of all power. And if you have submitted your life to Jesus, then I say, especially this week, as you're thinking about the meaning of Christmas, explicitly and repeatedly thank Jesus for being the Son of Man who became your servant. Wonder at it. Explicitly and repeatedly thank him for it. Do you know that you're never going to stop thanking him for this? When the souls around the throne are described in Revelation 5, they are all shouting, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain because you ransomed us to God by your blood. We're always going to be giving thanks to Jesus for becoming our servant and people from every nation, language, and tribe will be praising Jesus for what he did to ransom us. Now, most of us are familiar with the famous Peanuts Christmas special. came out in the mid-60s, and it's still, shockingly, portrayed on TV, even though it quotes scripture. I read earlier this week that even when it came out, CBS was hesitant to put it on because 20 verses of scripture were quoted in a primetime special. Thankfully, it did come out. The end of the the show, the climax of the show, is when the little character Linus quotes Luke 2. And it's so beautiful in its simplicity. He says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The creator of Peanuts, Charles Schultz, was uh, a follower of Jesus. He taught regularly in an adult Sunday school class, in his gospel preaching local church. In that special, he was trying to communicate one thing, that Christmas without worship is just busy emptiness. Worship is the very meaning of Christmas. So I urge you, this week in particular, deliberately, explicitly, repeatedly, worship the servant of slaves, worship the son of man who gave himself for you. The third and final application. We must obey Jesus' command. Every freed slave must follow him in serving others. In Jesus' kingdom, the person who's worthy of the highest honor, who's worthy of the highest admiration, is not the person with the most money, the person with the most followers, the person with the biggest business, the person with the most servants or the most employees. The person who is worthy of the highest honor and the highest admiration is the person who most serves others. Greatness is service. This is Jesus' viewpoint. Greatness is service.
This is true in our homes. If you're married, one spouse does not wait on the other to deserve their love and service. Each in a great marriage gives 100%. It's no 50-50, it's 100-100. Each gives 100%. And you don't wait for the other to become worthy of it. Great parents invest their lives. They pour themselves out for their children. They wear themselves out. They get gray hair. They lose their hair in caring for their kids and feeding their kids and correcting their kids and investing in their kids, in bearing their kids' stresses, in praying for their kids. Greatness is in service. Greatness is not in ease. Greatness is in service. This is true in the church. Sadly, most people who visit churches come to a church and are basically asking, what can this church do for me and do for my family? It is a consumer mindset that fills American Christians. God help us. God deliver us from a consumer mindset. Jesus wants his gatherings to be full of servants who are asking, how can I serve others? Christians who teach and sing and visit and bring meals and keep accountable. They listen to verses and they change diapers and they shovel snow and they have others over for dinner or others out for dinner and they sacrificially give their money to needs and they pray for each other consistently. Servants, servants, greatness is service. A church that's made up of servants, not consumers, is great in the eyes of Jesus. Greatness is service. We must understand this message from the Son of Man. Greatness is service. Just conclude by saying, Jesus is a king like no other. He is a king who is greater than every other. He will rule longer than any other. And he is a king who stooped lower than any other. He is the servant king. He is the servant of slaves. And I pray that every one of us here responds to this message with conviction, saying, Jesus, you are the servant king. You're the one I submit to. You're the one I will worship till I see you. Jesus, you're the servant king. And I want to commit to following you in a life of service for others, not service of myself. I commit my life to hard service and not ease. I commit my life to hard service because that's greatness in your eyes and your eyes are what matters most to me. God, help us to be shaped by this. Let's pray. Lord, you've said that we change from one degree of glory to the next, as we see, as we stand in awe of the glory of our Savior Jesus. Open our eyes to his his glory, his greatness, his humility. Open our eyes to his love and self-sacrifice. And I pray that we'd be transformed. For those of us in here who need to repent of pride, and self-seeking, and competitiveness, 
jealousy, selfish ambition, a completely wrong view of greatness. We think it's in money or power or success. God, I pray that you would help us to confess it and turn from it. I pray that you would transform us into the likeness of Jesus, that we would be humble servants. And I pray that for those in here who are struggling in the trenches of humble service, of family members, in the humble service of young believers seeking to disciple them, God, I pray that you would give strength to persevere. May we be thrilled that you know us, you see us, and I pray that we would persevere in service for you and for your glory. Amen.